it's simply a fact that myths and legends rise up in villages and towns almost as if they were mixed in the mortar with which the bricks are laid. Anywhere you find large gatherings of people, you will find stories, not all of them good. In every group, every community, you will find rumors and tales of sinister things that hide in the dark places and wait for those same people to turn their backs or let down their guards. Anthropologists would have a field day examining how this process brings people together and makes devils and demons of the people outside of the circle, creating tight-knit communities and giving them a shared folklore. What those same experts often forget, however, is that this type of myth-making does not just occur in the remote villages with picturesque backdrops, in the rural woodlands and imposing mountain ranges. Somehow, people think that for folklore to evolve, it has to be in a typically folksy setting. For some reason, you can't carve horror from concrete or hide monsters where there are electric lights. What people forget, of course, is that the brightest lights cast the deepest shadows and that between the cracks in the concrete and cement, stories like weeds continue to flourish and grow. The Marston Estate in the east of Moulton is no exception. Moulton has always been a place of stories. The town seems to swarm with creepy tales, from stories about witches in the woods to the one about Old Ragbag, the scarecrow that took a boy away and ate him. On the Marston Estate, though, things are a little different. Here, there really is more concrete pebble dash and cement. The estate was only built in the 1960s, and so the environment seems less suited to stories of ghosts and ghouls than, say, the woods that fringe mountain or the fields where a creepy old scarecrow might stand. Still, even on the estate, we had our terrors. One of the simplest, and yet the one that impacted my life the most, was the urban legend about the dead phone. When I think about it now, and particularly when I come to write it down, it sounds ridiculous. But to us as kids, it was more than just a story. It was absolute truth. The dead phone was, to the rest of the world, simply a phone. I suppose that's all it was in our world too, but it sure didn't seem like it. The dead phone was actually an entire old phone box of the kind that people still use before the widespread use of mobile phones. It was not one of the ancient red phone boxes that still look quite picturesque and appear on biscuit tins and souvenirs for people visiting London. This was a modern, early 90s piece of utility ware crap. A fairly nondescript booth with glass sides and the logo of the telephone company all up one side. Inside, the wall upon which the phone itself hung was plastered with adverts for takeaway and the odd number for a girl or a boy who would provide other services. Usually, boxes of this type stank of urine and were plastered all over with lewd or nonsensical graffiti. Love notes written in schoolboy code like Jade Loves Mick, IDST, if destroyed still true, or comments about teachers and authority figures, Mr. Redman is an absolute unit, or something like that. But not the dead phone. Its booth was spotless. Nobody graffitied the walls or wrote their initials on the metal plate of the dialing pad. Instead, it looked exactly like the day it had been put there, with a single exception. Directly above the space where the keypad of numbers was, some bright spark had scratched a crude, badly rendered skull and crossbones into the metal. The same talentless artist had then taken the time to scratch a near-perfect circle around the number 6 before writing the number 666. 666666B. 
below. Perhaps it was this odd bit of graffiti probably put there by the first person ever to use the payphone. Someone who had idly scratched an image with their keys whilst whispering sweet nothings to their girlfriend. Maybe it was that. Or maybe it was the booth's position right at the top of Fury's Hill, resting on top in such a way that it would be silhouetted against the sky when the sun went down, like a lone gravestar in some gothic churchyard or the castle on a precipice in an old Dracula movie. Whatever it was, we all knew it was cursed, and for that reason, it was never used by anyone, and it never, ever rang. There were two main stories around the dead phone. The first was that if you called the number written below, three sixes, three times, and then lift the receiver to your ear, you would hear a thin, silvery voice lisp into your ear. The devil's voice, telling you secrets no man should know and which would in time drive you insane. Hardly likely, but creepy enough to stop any of us from trying it. The second story was that if the phone rang and you answered it, you would be told the time of your death the day, the month, the year, and even the hour. Hence the name, the dead phone. It was a stupid local superstition of the kind that belonged with not stepping on the cracks in the paving stones or over three grids in a row, and yet somehow it stuck. So it only took a few hours after the ringing started for the whole school and even the whole estate to be buzzing about it. According to the version of the story I heard, the phone had started ringing at midnight though considering there would have been no one around at that time to hear it and the fact that midnight seemed like too far convenient an hour for it to have started, I was a bit skeptical of that claim. What was a fact, however, what was dead certain was that no matter when the phone had started ringing, it hadn't stopped since. It went on for hours. I remember rushing home from school that autumn day with two of my friends and finding as we arrived at the bottom of Fury's Hill, a huge crowd standing at the booth. It should have been laughable, a joke that everyone on the estate could join in on, that we would tell our folks about and they would laugh with their mates in the pub about later. But it wasn't. The people standing around the phone were hushed, all of them whispering theories and rumors with a hiss that echoed the rustling of the leaves as the wind plucked their copper heights one by one from the trees. And above that whisper, over the top of it all, all slicing through the chill autumn air and with fading light, that same repetitive ring. Bring, 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 bring. The sound was metallic, sharp, and somehow aggressively insistent. After every set of two rings, there would be a pause of perhaps a second, and we would wait, all of us, expecting it to stop, for that to be the final ring but instead it went on. Bring, 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 bring. It was cold up there and the sight of these people all gathered with the same solemn purpose seemed to have something deeply funeral about it. It wasn't something we could go home and tell our parents about because a lot of our parents were there. They too had been brought up on the stories about the dead phone and had wanted to see what all the fuss was about or else hear the thing actually ring. They had come up there joking and teasing each other, playing down the fact that in their use they had been frightened by a simple piece of machinery, allowing the local folklore to seep into their bones, to be passed on to their kids. But once there, once they stood face to face with the booth, believing it was nonsense and yet also knowing deep down that it might be the devil, 
playing down the fact that in their youth they had been frightened by a simple piece of machinery, allowing the local folklore to seep into their bones to be passed on to their kids. But once there, once they stood face to face with the booth, believing it was nonsense and yet also knowing deep down that it might be the devil calling on the other end, they fell into a sort of solemn reverence that scared us kids out of our wits. We watched them as they stood there, all of them staring at the empty booth and wondering, as we did, not only who was the call for, but who it might be, waiting on the other end. Eventually, people trickled away home. They ate their teas, watched the telly, and for a while forgot about the phone and the stupid local legend, but not entirely, especially since the phone kept ringing. From my house, on the other side of the estate, I couldn't hear it, but I was told by those who lived closer that even with the windows closed and the TV turned up loud, the sound seemed to reverberate around the estate, bouncing off the concrete and creeping into homes. I remember going to bed that night and picturing it, the booth, I mean, standing up there like a statue of some forgotten god on the top of the hill, all around silence, broken only by that glassy shriek, the shrill, repetitive sound over and over. Bring, bring. Bring, 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 bring. When the house phone rang in the middle of the night, I thought it was in my dreams. I remember coming downstairs, wiping sand from my eyes and seeing my father in his pajama bottom standing in our hall, which is where the house phone was kept in those days, staring down at it, but not daring to pick it up. Not just because of the time, 3.15 a.m., but because from where we were standing, we could hear the other phones. Next door, the house across the road, two doors down, all of the phones ringing at once. Instead of answering the phone, my dad looked up at me sheepishly and then opened the front door. Following him and sticking my head out, I saw that half the estate had come to their front doors, as if to confirm with everyone else that their phones were ringing too. They were. Every landline on the estate rang simultaneously, all of them going at once and creating a sound that always sounded to me like a strangely stuttered scream. The phones rang for 20 minutes and then suddenly stopped. All but one. I remember standing there in the street, barefooted at 3.30 a.m. and looking at the faces of the adults as they all, in unison, listened. From somewhere far away, up on Fury's Hill, the dead phone was still ringing. Ring, 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 ring. And then all at once, it stopped. My father turned slowly and told me to go inside. When he came back to the house an hour later, I was still sitting up. He never said a word, but instead walked straight past me, poured himself a whiskey, sat down at the kitchen table, and necked it in one go. Then he said simply, it stopped. The next day, we all heard how Aaron Matthews had walked alone up Fury's Hill and without looking back or allowing himself a second thought, had lifted the receiver and answered the dead phone. The ringing stopped and Aaron simply walked back down the hill, past the crowd that had gathered at the bottom and without saying a word went home. That night, he killed himself, hanging himself from the banister of his home stairs using the telephone cord. This much I can say for certain. What I can't ever say for certain is whether what he told his wife when he got home was true. According to her, he came through the door and burst into tears. When she asked him who had been on the other end, at first he wouldn't say a thing. But eventually, after a few hard drinks and without raising his eyes, he told her, 
It was me, Janie. The voice on the other end. It was my voice. I was talking to me. The phone mechanism for the dead phone was removed years ago. The booth, however, is still there. One of those things that the council was meant to clear away decades ago, but has never gotten around to. According to my son, the space is still called dead phone, and some in his class say that every now and again, you can hear a phone ringing when there isn't one. He said that if you hear the ring, you have to ignore the sound and pretend it isn't there. When I asked him why, he shook his head. Because it's the devil calling, he said. Funny, isn't it, how folklore persists?